Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, a series brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dream Radically is the need for those passionate about justice and equity to imagine the world they want to see, to envision a place that provides the societal conditions necessary for true justice to be the norm for all people. Join us as we embark on the journey of dreaming radically with community leaders, artists, activists, educators, and more. My name is Miles Francisco, and I'll be your host on this path of imagining. Let's dream. Today's conversation is between three of FLM's co-founders, Tevin McDaniel, Alham Carter, and myself. The two leaders and educators speak to you about the collective vision of FLM, what Dream Radically means to them, and how the outlook for structural change looks like in today's age. Good morning, fellas. How are y'all? I'm good. How are you, Mr. Francisco? Doing well, doing well. Um, so I'm here today joined with uh, Mr. Alham Carter and Tevin McDaniel. Alham Carter is currently the co-executive director at Foundation for Liberating Minds. He goes to Texas Christian University and is a senior there. Tevin is currently the director of education for Foundation for Liberating Minds. And the reason um, they are our first guest um, on this episode of Dream Radically um, is because they comprise two out of the four co-founders for Foundation for Liberating Minds. So we're just going to talk to them today a bit about the vision of Foundation for Liberating Minds, their roles within it, why they started it, and how Foundation for Liberating Minds <coughs> is the epitome of Dream Radically, Dreaming Radically. So the first question is for you, Mr. Carter, Alham, if you would. Could you start by telling us a bit about FLM, Foundation for Liberating Minds, where the idea started for you um, and how your passions led you to this, this creating this organization? Yeah, thank you. It's nice to be here, by the way. Foundation for Liberating Minds was at first, uh, it was called FAMOS, so the Foundation for Empowering Young Men and Women in Society. I had a dream in 2016 um, that I was standing in a school that apparently me and my friends had began or established. Um, I actually, as soon as I woke up, I had been praying basically every day, kind of wondering what I wanted to do. So at that time, I was a neuropsychology major. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't really know what I was doing with that. But I realized that I really I wanted to make big systemic change. I realized that my life isn't really mine. So I wanted to make sure uh, I dedicated my life to helping others. And so as soon as I woke up from this dream, there was this burning passion in my chest that I've never, ever felt before. It's one of the craziest feelings of all time. but And I wrote all the notes down, so I remember exactly what I was wearing, what the kids looked like in the school. I was in the library, and they were on the, working on computers. Um, but later that day, I decided to text up two of my best friends and my family members, Tevin and Miles, and I told them about it, and they didn't even let me finish. <laughs> they didn't even let me finish describing what the dream was, and they, they let me get on this spiel and this rant. And uh, they eventually joined, and I was really surprised about that. But, you know, here we are in 2020. So so you said something really interesting. You said that your life isn't your own. What, what do you mean by that? I just look, I look at all the people that's come before me, right? Some of the people I've looked up to and I've read uh, their autobiographies and just think people I'm passionate about or what they're passionate about. Um, I'm super passionate about social justice. Um, some of the people I've read is Malcolm X, Thurgood Marshall. They literally gave their lives to help other people. And so I realized in 2016 that this isn't about me. I kind of went by this saying in BAM, it's never been about me or an alternative is it's never been about money. Mm. And so when I say my life isn't necessarily my own, 
I've literally dedicated my life uh, since then to assisting others in any way possible. And so that's kind of where that statement came from. Mm. Why did you first reach out to Tevin and myself as well as Raythan? The passions, I think, co-align. Uh, Miles, since first grade, he read Alex Haley's autobiography of Malcolm X um, and Miss Putnam's class in Nichols Hills Elementary. Tevin, on the other hand, um, in high school, he had a passion project that I just, I loved. Um, he had a privileged walk and some other things, and I was like, wow, this man is different. And so, and with Raythan, Raythan's just been, Raythan's a brother of mine. He's an exceptional graphic designer. And so I figured this would be a great core to start with. Mm. And so um, I, don't, I look back on that decision today, and I don't, make, I don't have any regrets. So, so Tevin, tell us a little bit about that passion project that you did at Heritage Hall, I believe. Yes. Um, so as seniors at Heritage Hall, um, the school that me, Miles, and Alham all attended, there were these things called peer leaders um, where there was – a group of seniors that had to go t- through a very extensive interview process to become leaders, per se, in the school. And um, every week we would host these uh, meetings with freshmen, try to show them the direct path in which to go, um, the way in which to take full advantage of your high school career, as well as getting the education that you need and finding those passions that you want to do. At first, I decided to do a passion project with my friend Alex, and we were going to build a Frisbee golf course (laughs) around the school, which, by the way, actually still got implemented. (laughs) So kudos to Fish on that. But then Miles sort of snatched me away from it when we were in our English class, and every day me and Miles used to play these slam poetry Uh, these slam poetry videos or something educational or enlightening at the beginning of each class. And we used to have discussions over them and talk about it throughout the classroom. And we decided that there was a lot more work that needed to be done outside of just this class we were in. We needed to expand to the whole school. Um, So we decided to have a whole diversity club, a diversity plan to enact a new way of education at Heritage Hall, specifically throughout February when we, with the lack of education towards African-American community and culture. But we wanted to reach everything. Um, So we hosted a program for this passion project. We hosted a program, about an hour-long program, and we, we sat all the high schoolers down, all the faculty down, and tried to give them a light, tried to show them how real the world actually is and how privileges actually do work and how things can really help benefit you and oppress other people in ways that you don't even realize. And it was it was just a fantastic way to sort of get a ball rolling at a school where that was never talked about. Mm-hmm. So that was just a little spill about our, our passion project that we did. And real quick, just a shout out to Mr. London, uh, who was our English teacher there at Heritage Hall where um, sort of gave us the the flexibility and the autonomy to lead some class discussions. And he was an AP literature English teacher. Now has a book out actually on the Tulsa Race Massacre. If you're interested, put that in the show notes. Um, so big salute to Mr. London. So next, this question's for both of you. Um, if you could just talk a bit about the vision of FLM um, and what it looks like for you, you know, and how it's grown from you know when we first started meeting. Um, in 2017 or so, um, until today. 
I'll go ahead and, and start this one because the vision sort of like my, my favorite part of of this organization. As Alham was sort of saying earlier, when we first started, it was called FEMOS, which was a foundation. Or what was it? For empowering young men and women in society. Empowering young men and women in society. It's a mouthful. Um, a mouthful. Yeah. We went from that, from that to empower us, um, something that encompassed a little bit more than just men and women. And then we went from empower us to Foundation for Liberating Minds because we realized that it had to be more than just empowering ourselves. We had to enlighten ourselves and liberate ourselves from something that has bonded us down for so long. So with Empower Us, we came up with the acronym, which which ended up being our vision, um, that is enabling minds to promote open-mindedness without exclusion rendered by us, us being the people around us or us being um, the United States for certain marginalized groups, they hold down the same amount of power as the person next to you in society. And so when we when we work through these things in order to make the change that we want to see, um, it starts with promoting open-mindedness so that people can understand the people next to them. And then it starts with enabling yourself to do those things, giving yourself the power to say, okay, I'm going to break off the norm and learn something that nobody else has taught me, do something that nobody else wants me to do Mm -hmm. simply because what's going on right now shouldn't be and it's not working. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the vision is sort of the exact base on how we kind of want to tackle it at least that's what I got in my opinion. That's how we sort of want to tackle these social injustices and sort of in our fight for equality. Uh, I also see kind of two visions for FLM. One was what Tevin is describing, which I think kind of is a more all-encompassing one. So kind of the bigger the bigger vision of eradicating systemic oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think there's kind of that smaller vision, too, of empowering communities, mostly around Oklahoma, but whatever community that... Um, FLM members find themselves in ensuring that they come first. It's not necessarily, again, it's not about us. It's not even about FLM. Um, It's about the communities, um, even our school. And so that's kind of something we've taken into account in terms of uh, when we build the school or when we establish that, um, the communities come first. So I definitely think that's kind of the first, the smaller vision. Mm -hmm. The big vision is uh, obviously what Tevin was talking about, so eradicating systemic oppression. Mm -hmm. And the avenue by which FLM has chosen sort of to eradicate systemic oppression that you're talking about is through education. So could you talk a bit about why education, why you feel like that's, you know, a viable route to do these things? Um, And then also maybe talk a bit about sort of your background and your um, experience, K through 12 education in the state of Oklahoma and how that kind of shapes you to want to build a, a, a school, but also a curriculum or a framework by which um, students could get a, a better experience. I think this is a question for the director of education. You want to begin? <laughs> <laughs> education has been our main avenue. I think a lot because, like I was saying earlier with our passion project, the reason we started is because we saw a lack of education, a lack of of people of color in our classrooms, um, a lack of seeing teachers who resembled anything like us mm-hmm. so when you're when you're in a space where you struggle to deal with your own identity because you don't see it it really makes you think why we why we aren't even learning about it and it makes sense on how we never really gain any progress because what we're learning in the classrooms never um, helps those marginalized peoples because we never 
learn about them. We never understand anything about them because we refuse to to learn about them. So through education, that empowerment of people to be able to understand the person next to you, regardless of their race, religion, sex, that comes in a classroom where we have anti-biased teachings, where we have decolonized curriculum, where we have um, a place where people can understand the diversity in the classroom and move forward rather than shut other people out. And through education, through building this school, through this charter prep school, we want to be able to build those diverse classrooms that have no biased teachings with the decolonized curriculum so that we can learn about how we got to where we are, not just by what we're learning now, the people we're learning now who are the people that we have been told to learn about since the day that we have been going through education. And through that, that's sort of how we will break that down. Who are those people? White people. So a Eurocentric mold Eurocentric, to education. Yes. And and that's what you're trying to deconstruct and center who? Uh, center, center the marginalized people, center people of color, center just non-Western people, because those are the only cultures and and civilizations that we've ever that we've ever learned of mm-hmm. and there's been way more cultures that, that have touched the building of this place that we never even hear of mm-hmm. and in the different ways that when we are learned of so much of the history of the european or the colonizer it is an, ex- an extremely whitewashed version of the story um so telling the true facts um the true realities of you know how this country was built um, and, and, and how marginalized people came to be marginalized in this country, I think, is a really interesting one, but also a really important. You know, one of my favorite quotes from Marion Wright Edelman is, you can't be what you cannot see. Mm. So for black people in the classroom, for Latinx people in the classroom, for queer people or trans bodies in the classroom who are never learning about people who look like them or identified as they did or accomplished anything in this world, it has a chilling effect for them. So I think that's a, a really important thing in the classroom to, to bring in different identities, but also to show that they had a place in history as well, um, not just as, through being oppressed, but also through accomplishing certain things. So the title of this podcast is To Dream Radically, and I have my own definitions on you know what that means, what that looks like. You know, I, I see it pretty often in um, you know everyday spaces through activists and, and educators and things of that nature, but I wanted to get you all to to talk a bit about what Dream Radically is to you and maybe how FLM practices this Dreaming Radically um, and, and also how you practice it or how you do this uh, sort of practice, if you want to call it that, uh, outside of FLM. Um, so just kind of to preface, Dream Radically is a very ambiguous and abstract concept. Mm-hmm. I believe it varies person to person. And so with that said, uh, I believe Dream Radically is to go outside the box in your pursuit for social justice. And I think of actually Malcolm X here by any means necessary. We're choosing the route of education, but dreaming radically, in a sense, is to go above and beyond to find that equitable society, to chase, to pursue that equitable society. And so in terms of how FLM does that, we have seminars, we have trainings, and we're all college kids. Uh, anybody can dream radically. How you choose to do that, I think, varies, like when I said, it varies on the person. So whatever your talents or your skills or your abilities or whatever you think you excel at, um, you can dream radically through that. But at the end of the day, and at its very core, that's what FLM is all about, is dreaming radically. It, it was a dream to begin with. Mm. Furthermore, 
I think definitely FLM is a very unique and special organization because every member um, acknowledges and recognizes that we may never see the fruits of our labor. Mm -hmm. Like I said, this issue is over 200 years old. And so in order to kind of rewrite this, uh, as I like to call it, the master narrative of uh, colonialism, um, whiteness, uh, homophobia, Islamophobia, etc., we have to essentially rewrite or re-record over that. And so it's going to take a long time, but we have some very special people here. They all happen to be young. Um, like I said, we're all in our 20s. So we have a long ways to go to. So hopefully another 100, 200 more years, right? So we can actually see it. But, you know, it's a very special organization. So I'm hoping that people will definitely join along with us, um, professionals and adults alike. You know, you, you talked about how you're all college kids. So I think, could you talk a bit about, you know, your age, but also, you know, having the vision for, to create a nonprofit organization, but also one with this really huge endeavor that you're partaking in to literally dismantle systems of oppression, right? And you know, what that means to do that and to dream. And you're, you're talking more so, I think, about after dreaming that society or whatever that looks like for you going and acting on it. Um, so if you could talk about a bit about your positionality as a college student and having this dream and deciding to do these things in a society that often tells young people that to wait your turn or to take your time and things like that. As an African-American heterosexual male, I understand, this is just a preface, but I understand that we're not, black and brown people aren't the only people having issues, and I definitely have privilege. But in terms of dreaming radically in FLM, I understand that as we're trying to center the marginalized mm -hmm. and kind of take away from white privilege, implicit bias, and this kind of like white colonialist, biased, stereotyped education that we've mm -hmm. uh, acquired, kind of what Tevin was speaking on. And so in terms of age, um, I don't necessarily think that that should be a factor. Um, ageism happens to be another ism or another version of or alternate of systemic oppression. Again, uh, anybody can do that. Anybody can dream radically. I think the biggest issue here is that a lot of people see us kind of as this, like we're all 21, 22, and 23. They say that we don't have enough experience or that we're, you know, we don't really know what we're getting into. There's too much money and this and this and this. Well, the country is 200-something years old, and there hasn't been enough change. We're still, I mean, there's not Jim Crow segregation or slavery or anything like that, but the legal system still has a ton of cracks in it. Um, there's still a ton of institutional barriers for each of the marginalized groups, and so there's a need for a group like this. If anything, I believe people should actually be encouraging us to do this. Um, there's thousands and thousands of other organizations and individuals out there, uh, we should be working together. And so I'm hoping that uh, the old heads will, uh, will work with us rather than, you know, stigmatize our organization or bring us down. So um, in the future, hopefully we can actually work with them and even convince them to join us in, uh, in the mission, in the movement. Mm -hmm. so. Tevin, anything on Dream Radically or on uh, sort of youth-centered, a youth-centered organization and, you know, empowering young people or anything? Of that ilk. So I'll just go ahead and, and connect the two. For me, Dreaming Radically is doing something that is against the social norm consciously, knowingly, and willingly. Being able to have the idea to dismantle a system, a system of oppression, but any system that is holding or 
keeping you back from something. So to me, dreaming radically is walking around every day with the mindset of I'm going to understand the people around me rather than judge the people around me or try to figure out what they are based on what they look like. It is me telling my friends not to objectify women. It's me walking in my own daily walk, constantly reminding myself to do the work so that when it comes to other people, I know how to deal with it. So when you dream radically in that way, if you're passionate about it at a young age, you should do the things you're passionate about, um, which is also one of the one of the problems that we have in, in the classroom. We're never told what we really can do. And if we do have these passions, there's only certain outlets that people could do to get out of high school. None of them were ever education-based, nonprofit organization-based, especially for people of color. At a school we were at, it was 100% go play football, go play sports for a majority of us. And when you dream radically and you and you have that passion at a young age, it makes that drive almost so much so much better because now you've seen it, you're fresh out of it and you can you can really see what it takes because you have just been in a classroom. For a lot of people who are older than us, they've been in classrooms that were way worse, way worse than what we had. And in so what way? And what, um, just in terms of the lack of education, the lack of integration in the classroom, the lack of diversity in teachings, the lack of technology, just not being able to do certain things because we just hadn't advanced as a country fully and not even fully yet, but just hadn't advanced in the classroom. It's going to be a lot harder to change my mind because they've seen it. They saw it when they did it and like they never want to see that change again. But the more we press on it with the younger generation, I think the more we, we take those steps to move forward. And and um, that's sort of my, my goal. I think the younger generation is what's going to change the future rather than rather than the old generation. So I think the younger you start, the better. Because so. the younger people have to live with it a for longer. longer. <laughs> right? So you see these harms, you see these injustices, you see oppression, you've lived it, right? You've seen it firsthand, you've seen it in your communities, you've seen whether it's over-policing or criminalization or shootings of unarmed black people or what have you, you've seen ICE, right, terrorizing communities across the United States. And you, you know, know that those things are wrong in your heart, right? So when you have the ability to dream of something where this is no longer the norm, where we no, no longer normalize this state violence, um, you want to do something about it. Um, and I think there's immense power in, in young people being empowered to speak up, to say something, you know, to, to, to get into the fight, um, to be an activist at a young age. And, um, you know, I commend both of you because I think society is constantly telling you, wait your turn, right? Get that degree, get another degree, right? Where are your credentials? Have you done this, that, and the other? And to understand the ways that, you know, all of those, all of those people that are saying those things have internalized, you know, white supremacist culture that, that keeps certain people at the top, right? Um, it says that only certain people can speak and that only certain people can lead and that only only certain people can uh, teach. Um, so, you know, to, to really center young people, not so much as the future, but also as the present, right? Um, and that they can speak now and teach now and lead now and that because we are the future, um, our vision, you know, has to be brought to fruition now. So I think that's, that's really beautiful. So what would you all say um, to other young people? you know, who are experiencing these things, who are seeing these things and want to make a change, want to make a difference. And then also how do FLM are you seeking to enable them 
um, or to empower them or to, to allow them to see their voice. Be the change you want to see in the world. It's very easy to say, and a lot of people say it's a lot easier said than done, which in fact it may be. But if you want to see something get done, I guarantee you, if it's anything with social justice, it ain't going to get done if you don't start doing it yourself. And what we do is we give people the ability to be empowered enough to stand up for something. If you, can, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And so what we want to do is liberate people's, young people's minds so that they can be the change that they want to see in the world. And that's what, that's what I would tell young people. Uh, I definitely concur with Tevin. Just to add to what he was saying, I was actually speaking, I was talking to a friend of mine last night, and she was telling me that Gen Z has come so far from the baby boomers and the generations before that. But I told her, and like I would tell anybody, is uh, just don't fall into complacency. Um, just because things aren't necessarily overt and obvious doesn't make them less real. This is addition to what Tevin was saying, was uh, if you see something wrong, make sure to call it out. Don't be complacent. Don't say, oh, somebody else will do it, um, because then things will never get done. And so kind of the latter part of your question is how is FLM doing that? FLM again, is using education. People don't necessarily have to create a nonprofit, right, or an organization to address these issues. You can address them in your everyday lives, um, in your community. So again, so as Tevin was saying earlier, if you hear somebody make a misogynistic comment, call it out, you know. If you see a black or brown person um, getting mistreated for the color of their skin or their race or ethnicity, call them out. Um, it's pretty simple, but anybody can do it. Anybody can dream radically. And I think this is exactly where dream radically falls into place. Let's call it out. Don't be complacent. What do you say to people who claim ignorance to these things and particularly people with privileged identities of which some people have more privilege than others, but most of us have some sort of privilege. So what do, what do you say to people who, you know, say that, you know, they don't know or they didn't know that those things were wrong and, you know, how do we begin to get to a place where, People are acknowledging these things and are doing what you're saying to call it out. Well, the easiest way is to show them. Most of these people with privilege who abuse that privilege are doing it in a way to where they it's been done so many times before at a level to where it can be laid out in front of you and it'll make sense, mm. if that makes sense. There's been so many examples of abuse of privilege at so many different levels that it's because we don't learn any of that in the classroom that a lot of people are ignorant to it and they can claim that ignorance. And until you educate them in a way in which they see how their privilege is being abused by them and how somebody who even may be marginalized can use their privilege to oppress other people who are marginalized as well, until you lay that out for them, um, it's going to be hard for them to see. And the way you lay that out is constant reminders, constant ways to inform the person that, hey, you need to do this or, hey, you need to just think about this. Go through this with yourself. Anytime you make a comment to where you're constantly thinking about stuff that you're saying or even thinking 
without saying it out loud. And to those people who do claim ignorance, it's, it's a scapegoat to continue to stay ignorant. And so you have to call them out on that and, and really try to put it in front of them that you are using your privilege in a way that is oppressing other people. Um, and there's a way to stop it and a way to make it better to use your privilege to build those marginalized people up rather than impress them. And when the system's working at its best, it is that invisible or that, that you know, so we are ignorant to it, whether it's it's men and the ways that we benefit from patriarchy, right, or from sexism, or whether it's white people and whiteness, right? Think of the analogy of the fish swimming in water. When you swim in it for so long, you don't even realize that you're in water, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the reality of systemic oppression that we've lived with it our entire lives. We've been socialized to, when you see this, this wrongdoing, um, we, we rationalize it in different ways, right? And I think that's when systemic oppression is working at its best is when you can see that something's wrong and you can maybe see how you play a role in it, um, but you justify it in a way and, and the system justifies it in a way to where you don't even feel bad when you see it. Um, and I think when you have people around you, but also when you have people from the mountaintop or from whatever avenue people are speaking up, saying that these things are wrong and it doesn't have to be this way and that it always uh, hasn't been this way and that also we can imagine you know a better world a more just world that's when those things can begin to change but I think the idea around privilege and, and not acknowledging it and not being able to see it is is really real right and because we are we're, we're trained up to not acknowledge these things and not look at them and not make a difference and not look to and not seek change um, in any way shape or fashion so one last question for you all. Often people will say that certain people, certain ages, whether somebody's in first grade or second grade or third grade or sixth grade, are too young to learn about certain things, right? Um, so you talked about like bringing an anti-biased education or anti-racist or anti-sexist or anti-oppressive, uh, more generally, frameworks into the classroom. So what is the reason for that and, and sort of what is the need for it? Um, in the classroom, sort of this social justice lens to education. Because there's a way to keep our children from being ignorant to some of these marginalized groups, i.e. the LGBTQI plus community, some because we don't learn about any people in that, in that community in the classroom. So when it when it's something that has that's being talk negatively on outside of the classroom and you never hear anything about any of those people in the classroom unless it's in a negative connotation, you, you never have the understanding to say that something is or isn't right in terms of that group or that society. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of why we are saying that we're going to change who we, who we are basing our curriculum off of. Um, we are going to be teaching our students about a lot more different cultures and people and identities that still had to do in history that aren't white, cisgender, heterosexual males all the time. And when you do that, even at a young age, you don't necessarily have to explain. You just can put them in a situation where they see it and at least they're seeing. And once they get to a point in which they can understand, then it's not, I'd never know, I've never known, now I don't need to know. Now it's, oh, he's done this, she's done this, this person's done this. I've seen this before, now I can understand, now I can learn from it, and now I can bring it into my community. And that's sort of how I would say to go about it. So the socialization process for children begins um, K through 12. So you have to keep in mind um, these teachers 
are in the classroom with these students for even more time than they are with their families, around 40 hours a week, and then add sports and other extracurriculars outside of that, um, you're looking at the socialization process and in addition to whatever the family already believes. Mm. So they instill within their children their values, their morals, what they believe in. It's basically 24 hours of socialization. And so as FLM, kind of creating our own cur- or curriculum, if we can kind of take over that classroom period, that, you know, approximately 40 hours a week, we can at least combat the narrative that maybe the false narrative that their parents are. Um, we also hope to do parent trainings and parent conferences where we also enlighten the parents, unless they're super woke already. You know, that's cool. That would be awesome. Just kind of combating the socialization. It begins here. So in middle school, they're the most malleable. But K through 12, is that's where the socialization process starts. So if we can get to them um, before that, malleable period of middle school, maybe they won't be as lost. And to think about the ways that if you don't do these things, right, and when students go through the K-12 education and they're only seeing the European, right, they're only seeing cisgender white men, right, they're the only seeing in February, right, the only black characters we ever see are, are, are black cis men, right, they're bound to continue these stereotypes and these privileges and to believe these things and then, you know, they get to college or they get into society that is ever diversifying um, and they're lost, right? And they're confused and then, you know, they they have certain biases, a a certain hate for certain groups, right? So when you can get them into the classroom and allow them and and enable them to tool them with the language that they need to talk about the injustices that they're surely going to see within society, to, to be able to talk about race, to be able to talk about gender identity and gender expression, right? Nuclear family makeups, all these different type of things. Um, you are empowering with the, them, them with the tools to not oppress people um, and also them with the tools to make a change, make a difference in whatever way that looks for them, right? Like you said, Ohama doesn't necessarily have to be starting an organization or leading a protest or anything like that, but it, you know, you really are doing activist work. You really are embarking on justice work when you are saying something, when you see a wrongdoing, right? Calling out your friends for that homophobic comment or, or what have you. So I think that's, that's really powerful as well. Any last thoughts from you all before we wrap up? Just want to say uh, thank you for allowing us to be on this. This is our first. This is my third podcast, and I don't want to speak for Tevin, but uh, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you both. Um, you can check out um, Aham and Tevin's, as well as the rest of the FLM team's work, on our social media at Foundation Four LM, and also on FLM's website, FoundationForLiberatingMinds.org. Um, so again thank you both look forward to seeing what you all do in the coming months thank you for listening to Dream Radically podcast presented by Foundation for Liberating Minds like and subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts check out the work of FLM at Foundation for Liberating Minds on all social media platforms or on our website at foundationforliberatingminds.org Special thanks to The Third Space in Norman, Oklahoma for providing the beautiful space to record this podcast. Be well and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.